everybody. All right, everyone, if you can make your way back to your seats, uh, we would love for you to do that. It's so good to hear God's people talk and enjoy. Uh, do me a favor, remain standing. Uh, we like to do this for the authority of God's Word. We're going to be reading in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, 19 and following, and we just like out of respect and reverence for the Lord, we like to stand for the authority of God's Word. And then if you look in your worship guide, you're actually going to see a little sentence that we, in bold, that we like to say back to the Lord as we put ourselves underneath His Word. So this is the Word of God according to Luke chapter 16, starting in verse 19. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off. And Lazarus was at his side. And so this is the rich man. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And beside all this between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And so this is the rich man again. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers so that, they, so that he may warn them, lest they come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will re repent. And he said to him, if they did not hear Moses and the prophet, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. And we all say, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So in seminary, you spend most of your budget on books. A lot of these books have a thousand pages or so. And in the depths of all of these books, you're required to not only read them, but understand them and not just understand them, but be able to articulate them back to others. And over and over, it's your job as the seminarian to hear lectures, to read books in order to understand and be able to regurgitate all of the subjects that you are learning about. Every once in a while, though, there is a subject that brings great discomfort, maybe even a little silence at its matter. This morning, we will talk about one such subject. It's the Christian belief, this idea that we as a Christian church, as we follow Jesus, we believe in a literal hell. This idea that God utterly judges 
and souls of men come, come underneath the wrath of God, not just for a day, but for all eternity. This doctrine is tough. I understand that. It makes me uncomfortable. It makes all of us uncomfortable. And because of its discomfort, modern pulpits around America, around the world, often just sweep away this doctrine because it's just too hard to say. Or maybe it's even beneath the modern mind. Isn't the idea of hell, isn't that such an archaic understanding and shouldn't it be buried? We don't believe that anymore. But then there's the other side of the spectrum. There are preachers, maybe even in Appalachia, that pound pulpits that have sweaty brows and they preach with great angst this idea of a hell, fire, and brimstone type of message. We don't think that either of these approaches are very helpful. And that's one reason that we preach through the Bible. As you know, we've been in the Gospel of Luke for an entire year because we want to go from one section to the next and, and preach whatever comes next. And oftentimes when you preach that way, you can't dodge the hard topics. Even if they are uncomfortable, it's our jobs to preach the authority of God's word. So why is hell so uncomfortable? Well, because we have to admit that there is a God somewhere. We believe in heaven and his kingly rule and reign is called sovereignty. So how in the world could that sovereign God then send someone, send someone to hell? The debate rages on, like what happens to you and me when we die? And we have to fill that question with some kind of answer. I think even more importantly than that is, do the decisions that you and I make here on earth, as we're stuck in, in time and space, do those decisions actually have a consequence for all eternity? We're gonna try to tackle all of that this morning. This topic makes me uncomfortable personally. I have friends, some of them in, that were previously in ministry. I have family members who when confronted with this doctrine, with this belief system, with this understanding, no longer believe in God because they can't believe that God would ever condemn anyone and anyone underneath the eternal wrath of his judgment. They just can't do it. And so I understand that there are consequences to a sermon like this. And so all week I have been in prayer as we've knowing that this moment was about to happen. This is what we believe about hell. This is what we believe about eternal judgment, that there is a reward and that there is punishment. We believe that um, you don't have to just understand these concepts. The people, the rich man in our passage knew a lot about the concepts, but you have to agree with those, agree wholeheartedly with these things, maybe even embrace this idea of reward and punishment. And the reason we do this is not absent-minded because we believe that this doctrine and on this doctrine hinges many other doctrines. How would we know of God's eternal love without understanding his punishment? How would we even know that he relieves this pain? 
How would we even know of God's holiness and justice and that he has a standard? What would we call ourselves in our depravity and our, our condition when we sin against this holy God? What would we do with these questions if we just take the idea of punishment off the table? And the question or the answer is we couldn't. Do you know who teaches more about this doctrine than anyone else? Maybe Peter, maybe Paul, maybe the prophet Isaiah. These are all really good answers. But the person who teaches about eternal judgment more than any of those authors combined is Jesus. He even teaches more on judgment than he does heaven. It was serious to Jesus, it should be serious to us. And so if we say to ourselves, we love Jesus, we love his teaching, but there's no way that we could believe in a God who would ever do something like this, I would encourage us to go to a passage like today and grapple not just with Jesus's teachings, but Jesus himself, who is the answer of both love and judgment on the cross of Jesus Christ. He not only understood the consequences, but he alleviated the consequences by his very actions. It's at the end of this book in the Gospel of Luke that we hear Jesus say, everything in the scriptures are about me. And he says, everything, every jot, every tittle, it's about me. Every story, every shadow, every prophecy, it drills down to the person and work of Jesus Christ. And that includes the doctrine of hell. And so this morning we have to understand that the doctrine of hell actually shares something about Jesus that we would not know otherwise. And so as Jesus is teaching us about this topic, how does he do so? By telling us a story. He tells us a parable. And he often does this. He tells a story. He gives us rich characters and images that, we, that are seared into our hearts and minds that we can't forget because maybe, just maybe, the doctrine is too hard. The truth is too hard, but the story is hard to forget. And so Jesus teaches in this idea and in a way that we get to understand. And oftentimes in both the teachings of Jesus Christ and how the gospel of Luke presents these things, over and over and over, Luke gives us a choice. And in these parables and in these stories all throughout the gospel of Luke, it's either this or that. And Luke loves to give us two characters, two characters where there's so much writing on these individuals. Which way will they choose? Two distinct ways in which we will do life. And so in this parable, we have two. Two characters, two roads, two deaths, two consequences to that. You have one man who is financially very wealthy, but morally he was bankrupt. And then we had, on the other hand, we have someone who is financially bankrupt, and yet he is in right standing with God. What happened to one and what happened to the other? And in these two uh, stories, or in these two characters, we see a great contrast. The finances of these two men could not be any different. 
the differences between these men is that one was just had it all going for him and the other one did not. This is a typical haves and haves not kind of story. So you, if you look at verse 19, you'll get a glimpse into a rich man. You'll get some of the descriptors of what exactly this man was doing here on earth. You will hear this description that he was draped in purple, that he was dressed in linen. He used, Jesus uses the word sumptuous because that's the way he feasted. That's the way he ate. This guy was not just rich. He was rich, rich. In modern day terms, he was in Manhattan. He was at the penthouse. He looked over the city because everybody was beneath him. He didn't just have luxury cars. He had someone to drive him here and there. He had a chef and then he had a wardrobe. I could just go on and on. There's rich and then there's rich, rich. And then you get to verse 20 and you hear a little bit about the contrast, the stark contrast of the other choice, the other individual, the other person in our story, and that's poor Lazarus. And in this verse, you have not just poor, but you have poor, poor. His body is rebelling against him. He is sick. He's obviously poor financially, but also his body is just, it's just in utter disrepair. He depends on others to do everything for him. There's no way for him to help himself. He begged for everything. He begged not only people, but thought maybe just maybe a crumb would roll underneath the rich man's gate so that I could have another meal. There's poor and then there's poor, poor. This is an equivalent to tent city on Buffalo Mountain where men and women make their houses out of cardboard and old mattresses. Maybe it's the guys or the gals sitting at um, the intersections with cardboard signs. They're so miserable. They need other, they expect other people to do everything for them. One way that you know that you're reading a tragedy is that it just goes from bad to worse. And we know the climax of this poor man's misery is that there is a pack of dogs who show up at his, in his life and in order to provide comfort for him, lick his wounds to offer some kind of comfort. This guy was in bad shape. In all irony, the name Lazarus means God will help me. God will help me or God has helped to look at your heritage, to look at your backstory, to look at where you are and be like, God gets the credit, he's helped me. But how has God helped Lazarus? Physically, no. Financially, no. Dependent on society, yes. God hasn't helped him at all. To make bad matters worse, Jesus gives us a little detail about this doorstep of the rich man. And this is a word that doesn't just mean just a welcome mat, but this is an ornate marble mosaic. What Jesus is saying is this man's doormat is more worth than this entire man's life. He's creating a contrast. 
This guy's not just rich. He lacks charity. He lacks warmth. He lacks generosity. He lacks mercy. Over and over and over, Jesus is saying, see, there's a choice. There's a choice here to be had. Which way will you choose? Jesus spends about this much talking about their finances, but then the rest of the parable. So in just in terms of the economy of words, Jesus actually spends a lot more time talking about two other things other than comparing their finances. So what does Jesus talk about more or most? The eternal destiny of these two men. You see the inevitable junction that these two men have in common because they have nothing in common is that both of them will die and both of them did die. Jesus is telling us a passage or telling us a story of two men with two deaths, with two different sides of eternity. One goes to heaven and one goes to hell. Because Jesus is telling you and he's telling me that death is the great equalizer. We need to take this very seriously. Both the impoverished and the rich and the wealthy, they both end up in the same place and eternal destiny is at stake. And so where does Lazarus go? So just look here in verse 22, we get to Lazarus first and he goes, his destiny is the splendor of heaven. And in just a short, a few short verses, we see just this beautiful picture of what and a glimpse of what our eternal dwelling place might be if we are absent with our body and to be present with the Lord. We see that it's Lazarus. It's Lazarus who, here who gets a chauffeur because the angels actually come grab him and take him into heaven where he is going to be there in the presence of God forever. Not only that, but you see that he, the angels take him from his dusty, pitiful state into the presence of, King, of Abraham himself. This is Abraham, the father of our faith. He has no rival. He's the father of our faith. And so here, Lazarus is enjoying his eternal rest. It's above anything he could ever believe. It's amazing. Instantly. His poverty is gone. Instantly, his loneliness is gone. Instantly, his sickness is gone. He's been totally exalted in one moment, and that moment is death. When you looked at him in life, there was not much to look at. But boy, if you could see him in all eternity, how did he get there? Well, we know that Abraham is the father of our faith. And all people who dwell in God's presence are people of faith. So obviously Lazarus was a man of faith because he believed, he believed in God. He didn't look at his circumstances. He looked at God and believed fully and totally. And so because of that belief, he joined with the angels. He walked streets of gold. He'd be able to usher into the great congregation. He was in fellowship, not just with angels, but with all of these saints around them. Over and over and over, no more tears, no more death, no more hunger. He's enjoying the presence of God himself. 
practically maybe you're in here this morning and your body has failed you. Like literally, your circumstances in life or your physical body is just in mass rebellion and you are blaming God for all those things. And maybe that's fair. But Jesus is saying that there's more than just this life. Your consequences of this life is that you can end up somewhere else because of what you choose. And so what did he choose? He chose, he chose King Jesus over all things. There's another little fact about Lazarus's life that's, that's hard to pick out in the text if you only looked at the text. And that's the fact that he has a name. In every one of Jesus's parables, none, no one gets a proper name. No one. There's a sower, there's a farmer, there's a widow, there's a, you know, there's all of these things. They're just characteristics of a character, but nobody gets a proper name. To really hammer the point of the very existence of Lazarus is that Jesus gives him a proper name, meaning he's mine. Look at his life and look at his circumstances. You think that God hasn't helped him at all. But now, look at him now. God has truly helped him fully and completely. There's another destiny, and that's of the rich man. It's a harrowing picture of hell, and it stands in stark contrast to the bliss that, Abraham, or that Lazarus is enjoying. A few short breaths ago, Lazarus was living it up. He could look everywhere, and he could say, Whoo, I am something. But in the moment of his death, he was ushered to another place called Hades. Hades is a very Old Testament term. And it's, it's, a, it's a realm of the dead, but it's more than just you die and go to Hades. It's a more of a negative term. It symbolizes torment or divine judgment. It's a picture or it's a term that means that you are eternally separated from God himself. So what the rich man finds himself is he is in the relentless torment of eternal flames. And now his agony is multiplied a hundredfold to anything that Lazarus ever experienced on earth. It's so bad and it's so cruel that he pleads for just a drop of water to soothe his thirst. We think of the physical pain and think, oh, he's miserable. But it's the physical pain that is actually giving us a picture of his spiritual pain. Hades is not just being captive. Hades and hell is being separated from God forever. His dreadful fate is the fact that he's separated from God forever. Why? What did he do? What was so bad about this guy that this is where he ended up? Was it because he was rich? I mean, this is the only thing we really see in the picture or in the story is that he was rich. Can you go to hell for being rich or too rich? Obviously not because Father Abraham himself, he had plenty of wealth. So it's gotta be more than riches. 
David and Solomon were all part of God's family. Even this doler of purple, her name is Lydia. You know, she had a place to play in God's kingdom. So it's not the riches, but it's what the riches did to this, this man. It became his sole motivation in life. His riches gave him access to something, power and prestige and stamina. The riches actually became his refuge. It became his strength. It became his source of salvation. Probably the climax of our story happens in verse 25 when Jesus is talking about this man. It says, you in your lifetime received your good things. Notice he said good, not great, good. You see, this man was rich, but he also had a choice. And he chose the good things of life and he exalted those things above God and God alone. His status was more important. His bank account was more important. And ultimately it became his identity. The purpose of his life was to live for himself. That's what sent him to hell. His good things in our passage are past tense. You had your good things, meaning it's over. Your fate is sealed. There's nothing that we can do about it now. Notice that this rich man continues to plead over and over and over. He continues to make requests to Father Abraham, change something. And he says, the envelope is lick, still sealed, stamped, and sent. There's nothing that can be done now. You see, the sober reminding, reminder for you and I is that we can build our identity on an adjective. An adjective that goes in front of your name, your career, your personhood. And what should that adjective be? What is the thing that should describe your life and mine? The sober reality is what you put there, you, what you put there, not other people, but what you have chosen to put in front of your name matters. The scriptures tell us, pleads with us to make your purpose to make your identity, to make your motivation, to make your refuge, your strength, your salvation, something other than yourself. Because your good things can be had for sure. Live it up. It's all gonna come to you. But what's in front of your name will end if it's something other than the person and the work, King Jesus himself. So the two things that we understand about hell that we believe in, that we hold on to because it actually points to our need for God's love for us is that it's a fixed gulf. Look here how he's describing hell. It's, it's a gulf, it's a separation. He calls it a chasm. That means it's, 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 it's this great big canyon that's so big that you can see and maybe hear but it's, but it's not just big, but look how it's described. It's also fixed, 
meaning there's nothing that could happen. There's no changing this place. And it is a picture of utter and total separation from God for all eternity. Hell is a place of separation. It's an unbridgeable chasm. It's fixed. It's unyielding. It separates you from God's divine presence. It'll take you and keep you in a place of confinement. But it's more than that. You are apart from God, which means that you are apart of, from his mercy and apart from his love and apart from his grace and apart from your, his forgiveness and apart from him calling you mine. My son, my daughter, you are mine. Sin does that to us. Sin separates us from God. It distances us from our creator. One way that we can understand what sin is actually comes from a teaching from C.S. Lewis. It's pretty simplistic, right? But he says, the definition of sin is getting what you want. And the reason that's so impactful is, what do you want? What do you want your identity to be? What are you clinging to right now? Hell is a way of giving you what you want. Hell is simply a place where God says, okay. Do you wanna be self-absorbed forever? Okay. Do you want to live for yourself and yourself alone? Okay. Do you want to do it on your own? Okay. And so as Lewis grapples with this, he envisions this realm of being totally isolated and totally self-absorbed. And he says, hell is the most elaborate monument of human freedom. You get what you want. The only problem is that the doors of hell are locked from the inside. You chose it. These are sobering words. It's a fixed gulf. This scripture tells us that there's no second chance. So that what you choose here on earth is actually, it has consequences for all eternity. This rich man didn't have another chance. He was even begging some, for someone to go and give them another chance. So our earthly choices have an impact on our eternal destiny. To put it really crudely, hell doesn't have any exits. The decisions that you make now will have eternal consequences. And that's why we need to preach the gospel to ourselves. That's why we have to preach the gospel to others. We need to tell people, warn people of the judgment and the wrath to come and know that we have the good news to alleviate this, to hold on to what God has given to us fully and completely. It's not just a gulf, but it's also a flame. And this isn't just to scare us, but to give us a picture of what flames do. 
flames, it looks like it reduces physical matter down into nothing and just kind of turns into nothing. It just evaporates everything. But that's not true. You don't just, the thing doesn't just stop existing. Even if you look at, the fl- at, at smoke, it's small little particles. Or if you look at ash, it's not much, but it's still something there. So the great reduction is that this is your identity that you've been built on. That everything that you've been striving for will be reduced there. And this thirsty flame, and this is what this man is, he's thirsty, he's begging for comfort. And he says, will you please change my existence? But it can't happen. The thing that was, is now very, very differently. We've seen pictures of war and what do they use? Use fire, weapons, because it brings great destruction on great societies. But even personally, your anxiety or your worry or your angst, it actually starts to cripple you. And what Jesus is trying to tell us And a picture of this thirsty flame is that this is what will happen. This is what will happen. The great teacher is actually bringing comfort to you and me, even though it doesn't look comfortable at all. But he's saying there is a way out. There is a remedy. There's an anecdote. There's there's another choice. Will you choose the other choice the other way this morning? I don't know where you are with Jesus. I don't know where you are in your understanding of who God is. But if Jesus is worth anything, listen to his words this morning. We believe he's eternal, meaning he knows all eternity, past and future. He knows what he's talking about. And he's actually bringing a warning to you and me this morning. Because the New Testament tells us that there is a destiny. So what do we do about it? Where do we go with that? Well, Jesus Christ, who was rich, became poor so that we who are poor became rich. It all hinges on the person and work of Jesus. The significant reversal of our eternal destinies rests on Jesus and Jesus alone. Trust in Jesus, cling to Jesus this morning. One more sobering fact for the church before we hang up. The rich man knew his Bible. And the rich man came from a religious family. This was no atheist. He knew of Moses. He knew of the prophets. He knew who Abraham was. And he knew that he had to repent. The sober reality is maybe the ones that might be in the most danger are the people who know the most. King Jesus gives us a story that we can handle, that we can understand to properly know the weight of a moment of our eternal destiny is not, it depends on the adjective. What do we say about ourselves? So it's pretty simple of what we are to believe. And I'll just direct us to the name of our church because 10 years ago, we're like, how can we share our gospel, the gospel in everyday terms into ways that people would understand? 
And so what are we to believe? If you were to spend eternity in heaven, it goes like this. You have to believe in the blood of Christ Jesus, the one and only son of God who gave his life for us, that he bled and died to defeat both sin and death, that he is the one who had the judgment of God and the wrath of God. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was him that had to endure this for us. Stone is the stone that was rolled away. A picture of victory over both sin and death so that you and I could know Christ and to know our purpose was to continue to go and be disciples who make disciples of Jesus. That's what you believe. The story of red, the story of the stone and the story of church, this is what we believe. If you're wrestling with Jesus this morning, it's that simple. Believe in him. Let's pray. And so Lord, what do we believe this morning? That's what you ask of us. What do we believe? This morning, as we come to the table of the Lord, we come knowing that your love was expressed on the cross, that you loved us, your people so much that you sent Jesus to bridge a chasm that could not be crossed on our own. So Lord, I pray one for believers in here that we would cling to Jesus, that we would thank Jesus, that our praise and honor and worship of him because he has delivered us from all of this misery, that it would rise like incense, that our praises could just not be contained because of what you've done for us. But also in here this morning, there are likely people who are far from you, who do not know the love of Christ, who need to know that the choices they make here on earth have eternal consequences. Whom this day will you choose? I pray that this morning, under the authority of your word, that they would choose you. And we ask this in your good name. And so this is our tables, the table of remembrance, remembering that Jesus, he took the judgment that belonged to you. So go ahead and stand and just know that there's two tables in the front and the back for you to come to the table to eat this morning.